want to make you aware that we have a guest preacher today, one of my friends, Jonathan Master, who is the president of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, who spoke at our couples retreat this weekend and did a superb job for which we're thankful. And who is, you know, you guys all remember Jordan, of course, who regularly led up here on Sundays, who is actually not only the president of the seminary where Jordan is, but is Jordan's boss. Jordan is his assistant now. So we're pleased to have Jonathan here to preach the word for us. So feel free to come up, Jonathan. Thank you. It's a delight to be with you this morning. And you have just given my wife and I such a warm welcome over these past days. Those of you who are with us on the couples retreat, what a great privilege that was for us. And so we thank you for all of these opportunities. But the great privilege, of course, is really to worship with you, to worship our God together, and then to open his word. And I'd invite you to do that. Hebrews chapter 10. We'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 19. And going through verse 25. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 19, going through verse 25. I'll read the text of scripture. And then we'll ask the Lord's blessing once more on his word. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 19. Remember as I read and as you follow along and listen, this is the word of God. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Well, let's pray together. Our great God and Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. You have been very gracious in revealing yourself to us in and through it. We would be in the dark on so many things if you had not given us your holy word. Father, we thank you that your word is also accompanied when it is read and preached. It's accompanied with great power from your spirit. Your spirit uses your word to do his work in our hearts. We pray that that might be so this morning, that we might have a palpable awareness of the work of your spirit through your word. Father, we need to be convicted of sin. We need to be trained in righteousness. We need to be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And we pray that you do those things, but we also ask that you might see fit to glorify your son in our midst as we open your word together. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, every year, the Gallup organization does a poll of Americans, and it's a scientific study that they've honed over a number of years, and it has to do with confidence in various institutions. So the most recent Gallup poll is from 2022, and the headline, if you were to look this up, is that there is a crisis of confidence. Some of the evidence for that that they give, that only 25% of Americans have confidence in the Supreme Court. 
23% in the presidency and Congress. Sounds a bit high to me. Five other institutions, it said, are at their lowest point in at least three decades, including the church, newspapers, the criminal justice system, big business, and the police. And they go on to talk about technology companies and all these other areas of life that have reach into our daily lives. And what they demonstrate is, is indeed a crisis of confidence. Now, I say all that just by way of introduction, because if you notice in verse 19, the way this whole argument begins, the way this whole paragraph begins in Hebrews 10, 19, has to do with confidence. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Now, why would he say that? Why would he declare, first of all, that if you're a Christian, you have confidence and why would that confidence be something extraordinary? Let me deal with the first question first. Why is it that he assumes that if you're in Jesus Christ, if you're reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, through faith in him, that if that's true of you, then you have confidence to enter the holy places? And the reason for this, the reason for this confidence is because as the writer to Hebrews has established from the very first verses of this book, it's really a sermon, he calls it a word of exhortation at the end, but this book that we have in front of us, he has shown us the great superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. He shows how Christ's revelation, the revelation given through Jesus Christ, is superior to the revelation that was given in the Old Testament. It's not in conflict with it, but it is greater than. It is superior to it. He shows that Christ's Work and the work that God has done through the apostles, through the apostolic messengers, gives a superior kind of a stability that the Mosaic law did not provide. Jesus is greater than Moses, the writer in Hebrews teaches in chapter 3. And then he spends a great deal of time, and this is directly relevant to verse 19, he spends a great deal of time, beginning in chapter 4, speaking about the high priestly work of Jesus Christ. That though there were priests in the Old Testament, they were many in number, they were imperfect, they died. But Jesus Christ, he says, is a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And because he is this great high priest in the order of Melchizedek, and he's the guarantor of a better covenant, that brings us confidence, but it's not just that, because what he teaches as well at the beginning part of this chapter, in chapter 10, is that Christ made a sacrifice, and the sacrifice was himself. He is both priest and sacrifice, and in both ways, he is perfect. And I want to read for you just a brief a section from Hebrews chapter 9, which attempts to bring these things together. Beginning in verse 11, here's what it says. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And so the reason for the confidence that the writer to Hebrews assumes in verse 19, the confidence to enter the holy places, is not because of anything that we can claim in and of ourselves. 
It's not because we've attained to this greater standard of morality or enlightenment. It's simply because of the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And the writer to Hebrews knows that we are, if we're Christians, we're united to him through faith. Now, I wonder if I had polled you as you walked in the door and I had asked you, what does it mean to be a Christian? What do you mean when you say you're a Christian? I wonder how many of you, if any of you, would have said this. Well, what it means is, fundamentally, that I'm united to Jesus Christ. And because I'm united to Jesus Christ, and he himself intercedes on my behalf, and he has gone before me, and he has offered his once-for-all perfect sacrifice, and he is the perfect and eternal high priest, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because of all those things, I... Through the grace of God, in in God's immense kindness, not because of anything I'd done, but out of God's immense kindness, I actually have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus. You know, I mentioned this to the retreat when we were looking together yesterday at some texts of scripture. I mentioned the fact that the first day of the tabernacle, grand opening of the tabernacle in the Old Testament, The high priests went in to offer a sacrifice of some kind and they were killed immediately. That's an inauspicious beginning. And even if you were a very faithful, godly, believing Israelite and you came to offer your sacrifice, you handed it over to the priest and you handed it over with some degree of trepidation because you didn't know whether or not that priest was himself fit to go and offer the sacrifice. You didn't know whether that priest would manipulate your sacrifice after you hand it off to him. That happened in Israel's history. We know the Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were sort of grabbing parts of the sacrifices and demanding and extorting people. No, but not so now. Now we can go to the Lord confidently, having confident access to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus Christ. He expands what this means in verse 20 by saying, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. In other words, because of the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ never to be repeated, because of that once for all sacrifice, we can have confidence to approach God. And then he goes on in verse 21 to give another source of our confidence and it's equally important and in fact it goes hand in hand with what he's just said in verse 20 it's because of Christ's sacrifice that we can have confident access but it's also because of Christ's priesthood that we can have confident access you see those Old Testament priests many in number imperfect sinful sometimes wholly unqualified sometimes trying their best but often with mixed motives and mixed spiritual complacency. There was an instability to that, but not when you go through Jesus Christ as your high priest. Think about these things for a moment. No longer do we have to go through a merely human mediator to get to God. We go through the God-man. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. No longer do we go through a high priest who is unsympathetic, uncaring, or unavailable. No, we have the greatest high priest who gives us confident access 
to our Father in heaven. And so right at the outset, we're confronted with a question. And it goes along with the question I would have asked you walking in the door. Do you have this kind of confidence? Do you know this basic premise to be true of you? Is this a sort of bedrock foundational conviction in your Christian life? Oh, I have confident access to God because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, since these things are true, the writer to Hebrews says, there are three commands, three imperatives that flow out from these things. And it's important to get the order right. The imperatives don't come first. He doesn't say, do these things and you will have confident access to God. No, what he says is, since you do have confident access to God, since you are united to Jesus Christ, since we do have a great high priest over the house of God, then these three things must obtain from that. These three things must be true of us because that is true of us. And the three commands are very easy for you to see in your own Bible. If you look down at your Bible, I think you'll spot them immediately because in the ESV translation that I'm reading from, they each begin with this word, let us. These two words, let us. And you'll see it in verse 22, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast. And verse 24, let us consider. And it's important for us to take these in order and to see how all of them flow out from what he said at the beginning about our confident access to the Lord. Now, the first imperative is this in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. What is the writer saying to us? Well, what he's saying is this. Based on the confident access you can have, what you must be doing because of that is you must be drawing near to God. What does that mean, to draw near to God? Well, it's actually language from the Old Testament book of Leviticus. It's language that's found over and over again in the regulations for priests. It's found in the regulations for worshipers who are going to come and bring their offering to the priests. There are a number of places where something like that is used, this language of drawing near to God. Let me just read one of them to you from Leviticus chapter 9. Moses said to Aaron... Draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people and bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. It's a command that's issued over and over again in the Old Testament to the priests, to the Levites, even to the people coming to the priests. It's given to them when they are enjoined to approach God. To approach God in worship and perhaps more specifically to approach God in prayer. And so it's no surprise that when we come to the New Testament and we see that same phrase used, that same term used that's taken directly from these Old Testament texts, that what it means is the same kind of thing. So in James 4.8, draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And the place where you see that phrase the most is in this book, in the book of Hebrews. It's building on all that Levitical terminology. So you see it in Hebrews 4, in Hebrews 7, two times, and in Hebrews 10, two times, and then in Hebrews chapter 11. And let me give you the one that's perhaps the most famous, and I think this may crystallize for you what he's describing here in verse 22. 
It's from Hebrews 4, the first time the writer to Hebrews uses it. He says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What's the writer saying in this context? Well, he's saying, because you, if you're in Christ, have confident access to God, what should you be doing? Well, you should be drawing near to God. You should be drawing near to God in the context of public worship. You should be drawing near to God in prayer. And I have to ask you this morning, is that characteristic of you? Are you someone whose schedule includes a great deal of drawing near to God? Is your schedule conducive to prayer? Is that one of the first things that you think of when you think of your activities as a Christian? What it means for you to actually live out these great privileges that are yours in Jesus Christ? Well, I'm someone who, I'm someone who prays. I'm someone who gathers together and loves gathering together with God's people to draw near to Him in worship. You know, of course, it's striking when you look at the gospel accounts of the Lord Jesus Christ, how often this characterizes His life on earth. When the God-man lived among us in this world, He was a man of prayer. He was a man who drew near to God. And oh, this is a great mystery. Because we're speaking of the God-man here. The second person of the Trinity. God incarnate. And yet God incarnate in his time on earth. Drew near to the Father in prayer frequently. How often would he go aside to a quiet place that he might pray. How often did he encourage his disciples to pray and pray along with them? How often did he teach on prayer? Oh, and I love that little almost throwaway line that we hear in Luke's gospel. Where it talks about him on the Sabbath day going and worshiping in the synagogue. And then it says as this little, adds this little clause, as was his custom. Oh, if there were anyone in human history... Who might have said, I'm not going to attend a public worship. It would be the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet he did. And he, in fact, built his life and his ministry around prayer. Now we can draw near to God in this way. Having a full assurance of faith because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. If you doubt your own faith. If you doubt your own the confident access you might have if you question that. What's the writer to Hebrews going to say to you? Well, look to Christ. Look to your great high priest. You're approaching God through him. And because you're approaching God through him, you can do it with full assurance of faith. But he adds another phrase at the end of verse 22. We're drawing near with a full assurance with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Well, what does this mean? Well, once again, of course, we have to mine the depths of Leviticus as our starting place to understand the book of Hebrews. And what you see is, in starting back in Exodus 29, but then in Leviticus 4, what you see, and throughout Leviticus, Leviticus 4, Leviticus 14, other places, 
This is the action that was taken by the priests. The priests were sprinkled clean with water before they would go in to the presence of God in the tabernacle. It was a way of consecrating themselves. It was a way of displaying in types and shadows the kind of purification that we need by the Holy Spirit. And the writer Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, knew this to be true. And so what he did is he took this Levitical language and he talked about the new covenant privileges in these terms. He talked about us being sprinkled with pure water by the Holy Spirit. And whereas in the type and in the shadow, it's the priest and the sacrifice who is sprinkled. What we see in Ezekiel is that that we ourselves as worshipers are sprinkled. Our hearts are sprinkled. So what is he talking about here? He's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit in us, giving us new birth that we might come to God with purity and with cleanliness. In other words, we come to God confidently because of the work of Christ on our behalf. No need to bring a sacrifice. No need to wash and prepare yourself outwardly. No need to question in your mind, in the back of your mind, whether the priest may or may not have gotten things right. No, we go confidently in and through the full provision, the full pardon we've received in Christ. Well, that's the first imperative. Look at the second imperative in verse 23. The second imperative is this. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Now, I think this is a great display of the realism of the Bible. Have you ever noticed this in the Bible, how often it recognizes our own weakness, our own frailty? Uh, one, of, one of my favorite examples of this actually comes in the book of Ephesians. In the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters roughly outline the salvation that, that God's given us in Christ and the way in which that transforms our understanding of ourselves and our understanding of the church and how he took us from being enslaved to sin to being in the kingdom of his son to being uh, going moving from being objects of wrath to being vessels of mercy but then but then in chapter 4 what Paul does in the book of Ephesians is he says in view of the mercies of God in view of these things walk worthy of the high calling to which you've been called and what does it mean to walk worthy in Ephesians 4, well, what he says is what it means to walk worthy is to walk in humility towards one another, forgiving each other. And I was struck when I read that of the realism that Paul has when he writes those words. He knows that what it means for us to walk in humility to one another is walking in forgiveness, overlooking, trespass. In other words, he knows that it's not easy. He knows that we're not naturally prone to these sorts of things. And I think the same kind of logic is found here in verse 23. The writer of Hebrews knows that we don't naturally and easily and automatically hold fast with confidence to the hope that is ours without wavering. He knows that this is a struggle. So, if you are a Christian, and you are struggling, wavering in hope. These promises of the future, you know them to be true. They're in your Bible. But they, at certain times, seem very distant, almost unreal. You almost can't believe they're true. 
And maybe in some very, very dark moments, you question whether they can be true at all. Well, the writer of Hebrews is writing then to someone like you. Because he knows that this is a struggle, that this is a challenge, that this is something that doesn't come to us naturally. And yet, he says, we need to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. You know, it's striking. Some commentators have tried to assemble some understanding of the actual congregation to which this writer is, is writing. Uh, what were they struggling with? And one commentator puts it this way when he writes about the church to which the writer to Hebrews was writing this. He says, they seem to have lacked assurance, been prone to laziness at times, with less and less of an appetite for spiritual things, unable to teach, recaptured or in danger of being recaptured by old hindrances, resenting hardship, without longing for heaven, and irritated with their leadership. That's the description that one commentator surveying the whole thing is given. And so the writer to Hebrews is not writing to a group of people who didn't know what it was to struggle, who didn't know what it was to have a wavering hope, which is why he says what he says. Because he says, we have confidence we need to hold fast the confession of our hope. And, and why is it? Why can we do that? Look at the ground of all that in verse 23. Because he who promised is faithful. You know, when you read so many of the old Puritans, they use different terms to talk about their Bibles. Wonderful terms to talk about their Bibles. And one of my favorite terms is a term that you find in a number of Puritan writers. They'll say, the Bible, our, our Bible is like a promissory note. What do they mean by that? They mean it's, it's a kind of contract. It's a, it's a kind of guarantee that God has given to us. He's given us this contract, this last will and testament, you might say. And he's given it to us that we might know all the things that are ours, all the things that will be ours in Jesus Christ. And there's certainly some truth to that. The Bible is a promissory note. And what the Puritans always say is, because it's a promissory note, you need to know every clause of your Bible. You need to know all the details. You need to know exactly what the Lord has guaranteed you. You need to know exactly the terms of this great promissory note he's given to you. So you're like a lawyer searching through it, reading all the fine print, making sure you know every paragraph so that you can know what it is that God has promised you in Christ. And you see, that's the same logic we have here in verse 23. Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Well, because you know the one who's promised it. You know the one who's given you this hope. Jesus Christ is faithful. This is the key to the whole thing. This is why... The book of Hebrews up to this point has devoted itself with proving to us the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Far greater than Moses, far greater than any angel, far more reliable than a human high priest. It's Jesus Christ who's given you these promises and he will be faithful to them. 
And so hold fast to your hope without wavering. Now the third imperative that we have is found in verse 24. If you're like me and you encountered this early on in your time at church or your time being discipled as a Christian, you may have skipped immediately to verse 25. Verse 25 is one of these wonderful texts that we go to to talk about making Sunday morning, Lord's Day worship uh, an important part of your life, not skipping church. Because what does it say? Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. But that's actually not the imperative. That is an implication of the imperative. That is actually, I think, a a legitimate application of verse 25 to say you shouldn't neglect public worship. But actually the command comes a verse earlier in verse 24. And the command, in a sense, is much more all-encompassing than just simply don't skip church. Because what does the command say in verse 24? Actually, it's a positive command. And the command is this. Let us consider how to spur one another on to love and good works. Now that requires a great deal of thought. In fact, that term consider that is used here generally refers to thinking ahead of time about something. So think about that for a moment. Think ahead of time. Think carefully. Really reflect clearly before the fact about how you can be used to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. How would that transform every Lord's Day for you? If as you were preparing on Saturday night and as you were driving in on Sunday morning, you were thinking to yourself, well, I want to consider carefully how I might be used to spur on other people to love and good deeds. Not thinking to yourself, I hope this is worth it. I hope I get something out of this. Or I hope that I see certain people or don't see certain people. No, no, no. I want to be used as I'm going to meet together. I want to be used by God to spur up other people to love and good works. Now, we each have enough different people in our lives that we know that this is something that does require thought ahead of time. There are people that you know, if you stop and think about it, you know enough about their situation and you know what they really need as best you can tell, what they really need is just some, some encouragement in the Lord. They need someone to just come alongside them and encourage them and help them and, and do everything they can to, to sort of bolster them in their walk with Christ. And there are some people in our lives who need something a little bit more assertive, who probably need someone to lovingly, caringly, in the context of a relationship, confront them about their sin or about patterns that we see that may be detrimental to the cause of Christ. And and you know when you enter into those conversations, you, you should do so advisedly and cautiously. But the point is, with all of these things, we should be thinking ahead about how we can be used to spur on one another 
to love and good deeds. So that as we gather together, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but as we gather together, we're not simply checking off the Hebrews 10.25 box. We're actually being used by God to build up the body of Christ and to help others in their walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how does this connect with the confidence? Well, it connects with confidence because we can only do this knowing what God in Christ has done for us. And we can only exhort one another as Christians knowing what God in Christ has done for them. You see, the fact of the matter is, this entire paragraph, if you're not in Christ, if you haven't turned away from your sin, turned to Christ in faith, and you're not resting in Him alone for your salvation, then none of this paragraph applies to you. You don't have confident access to God. You don't. Because you're not in Christ. You can't draw near to Him with full assurance having your heart sprinkled clean. Because your heart hasn't been sprinkled clean. And you can have no confidence when approaching the Lord apart from approaching Him through Christ. You can't hold fast to your confession of hope because what the Bible says is those who are apart from Christ are awaiting a certain judgment from God and not confident hope. But if you're in Christ, you can confidently stir up others to love and good deeds because you have been transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And if they're in Christ, so have they. And so you're exhorting them not to do something that is outside of what God has given them the ability to do. When you say to them, you ought to draw near, it's because they can have that kind of drawing near. They can have that kind of confidence. But of course, we can't do any of this if we're neglecting to meet together. As was the habit of some and is the habit of some. Now, if you're a Christian and you're sitting here, I hope you notice something about each of these commands. 22, 23, and 24. Each hinges on something that God has done or that God will do. Our confidence as Christians and this needs to be made very clear. Our confidence in Christians does not come from ourselves. It comes only from the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole thing is a therefore. The whole paragraph begins with therefore in verse 19. And in verse 22, it's God who has sprinkled clean our hearts. In verse 23, it's God in the Lord Jesus Christ who's faithful to his promises. And then in verse 25... Why is it that we don't neglect, but we spur one another on and consider how to spur one another on? Because the day of Christ is drawing near. And because of all of this, because of the good news of Jesus Christ, because of his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension on our behalf, because of his great and precious promises, the writer says, looking forward to that great day, living in confidence now, we can and must do these things. 
Brothers and sisters, our time on earth is short. It is often difficult. We are often perplexed by circumstances, beset with suffering, unsure of how to handle the relationships the Lord has placed in our life. But the scriptures tell us we can live with confidence looking to the return of Christ. One of my favorite meditations on this comes from an old Scottish Puritan, Samuel Rutherford. Here's his perspective on the life we live now with confidence, with hope, in the midst of difficulties. When we shall come home, he says, when the end of verse 25 happens, when we shall come home and enter possession of our brother's fair kingdom, and when our heads shall find the weight of the eternal crown of glory, and when we shall look back to pains and sufferings, difficulties and doubts, then we shall see the life and sorrow to be one less than one step or stride from prison to glory, and that our little inch of time suffering is not worthy of our first night's welcome home. Do all these things more and more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for entrusting it to us. Work through your spirit as you have been doing. Continue to do it, Father. We need your grace in our lives. We thank you for the confident access we have, even in our worship, because of what Christ has done. And it's in Christ's name we thank you for these things. Amen.